Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt and Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this edition of the H2O Podcast. My name is Jason Hunt. And I am Timothy Harvey. And we both, of, both of the microphones are working. <laughs> what do you think? Oh, what a weekend. Oh, man, I tell you. Charlie Daniels, did you see that? I did, and Charlie, did. We, I, I saw... Um, I don't know, three or four um, emails that came in over the weekend on various different people that had passed away. I don't think it's, I, well, why? It, you know, you look at some on? of these folks and you realize they've been around for our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to some degree, um, we are not getting any younger. Uh, we have shush, noticed over shush, time. Shush. And, uh, <laughs> I, mean, I think I, you know there when you lose some of these like iconic figures in your lives, uh, and I think that some of us, I think really, you know, you and I grew up at a time when when music was really exploding in ways that I mean, it's always been hugely influential. I mean, it, music is one of the big passions that drives people. I mean, you have, it has an influence that's uh, you know in the scale of a song, of the power of a song mm. to, to influence people, to change people's lives, to, to hit you in the emotional place that you need it to, or don't need it to, yeah. um, depending on the song. <clears throat> and you look at, you know, how the impact of, you know, uh, Prince dying or David Bowie dying and, and these things where, you know, these, these people were so influential on music and how much they've been a really large factor in, our lives over the last decade, you know, we, you and I are both five decades old. That's a long time. And, and, and yeah. you look at, you look at these folks and, and realize how long they have been influential on music in our lifetime. Uh, it's really kind of amazing how, how lucky we have been to live in a time when these folks were producing iconic music that, you know, 30 years, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that still is played and listened to now and still has power now. That's, that's kind of amazing. Well, not only that, but the influence that they've had on other musicians, other composers, other, uh, you know, performers, other artists. So, you know, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned Prince, you mentioned David Bowie, George Michael was another one. Michael Jackson was another one. Elvis. Right. Um, but you also have uh, people like, uh, Aaron Copeland. I mean, Aaron Copeland yeah. was alive uh, during that time, and uh, George and Ira Gershwin. And, and no question. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and and you think about this the 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 fact that you know it's just notes, and you know music is part of it is just like ha, the this, the talent it takes to make a handful of sounds. Mm -hmm hit you and resonate with you, whether it's something with, with lyrics or without, um, all music tells a story. And the power that some of these people have had in storytelling, which we talk about a lot in this show, yeah. um, is, is really amazing. 
Well, and having done a little of that uh, myself with uh, composing in high school, uh, mm-hmm. I can tell you that it is uh, it is not it is not to be taken lightly uh, the construction of multiple layers of the melodies and the counter melody and the more harmony and the the contrapuntal stuff over here, the percussion over here, and all this. I remember I had put together a, a, I don't know if you'd call it a concerto. It was The original plan wasn't for it to be four movements. Mm. And I'd finished the first one in time for us to perform it. And in, in, at my school, all of the seniors got to do solos. Each, each of us got our, got our own solo as the final performance in the last concert. Well, instead of doing a solo, I conducted a piece that I had composed. And I remember sitting in the back during a couple of the first rehearsals. And we get to a certain part, and I had put a counter melody in with the oboe. And it kind of floated across the top of the melody, and I heard it, and I thought did I write that? I don't remember putting that in there. That's actually kind of cool. And I was very impressed with myself, but it, but it was one of those things where if you're not keeping track of everything that's going on in the music that you're writing, there are, there, there is a, a danger, a risk that you could lose pieces of what you're trying to do. So it's, you have to, you have to pay attention to, all right, well, the trumpets are doing this, the horns are doing this, and the clarinets are doing this, and you've got to keep it all straight in your head because it's all new. Nobody's performed it before, so you have absolutely no idea what it's going to sound like except right. what you're hearing up here. I mean, you could plink, plink, plink a little bit on the piano, but that still only gives you a, a piece of a hint of a maybe what it sounds like. You don't know until you go in there right in front of everybody okay let's play this and see what happens and the the first day we rehearsed it when everybody got their music it was the very first time and everybody was all impressed that i've written this thing and i'm i'm terrified that it's going to sound like crap (laughs) i'm just like okay i've been studying music since i was five i it should be okay it should be okay really it should be okay but yeah, it's uh, the 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 amount of talent that it takes to do that kind of thing on the regular, on demand, on a deadline, is not something that I would want to do. Well, and when the folks who can do that can build a career out of it, mm-hmm. um, you know, Ennio Morricone. The having his career, I'm looking at his scores from the 1950s on. Um, and uh, now, not every not every iconic score that people recognize or may not even realize is one of his scores. Of course, is a genre picture. Right. Uh, when we're talking about science fiction and fantasy and horror, there there are several there, but there's quite a few that are very recognizable that uh, 
for a few dollars more. Sergio Leone used, uh, you know, there's well, Italian composer, spaghetti westerns. Well, the good uh, he did the good, bad, the ugly, right? Yeah, I'm seeing one here on in, in from 1964. The Twelve-Handed Men of Mars looks like it's his first science fiction score. Four extraterrestrials X1, X2, X3, and X4 arrive on Earth in the early 60s. Here they decide to take on human features to study the terrestrials incognito, but end up getting involved in the Roman Dulce Vita. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so, <clears throat> so at that time there. he was also doing um, music for spy movies. There was a um, Agent Zero Agent Zero Seventy Seven, an Italian action spy adventure film. Of course, nineteen sixties were the era of Bond and many, many imitators mm -hmm. uh, across the country, across the, well, across the, the world, across the country, um, definitely across the world. Um, and of course, it was also a big period of the Western. So of course, again, a lot of his stuff was, was definitely there. But science fiction um, and horror were things that actually kind of played through. Did you know he, would, he did the score for the Italian version of Space 1999, the TV series? No, I did not know that. I missed that. I on didn't the, know that either. List. Now I really want to hear the music, the score. No the, kidding, it, right? Well, and the thing the thing that gets me is I see a lot of biblical films mm -hmm. in this. And, oh. and, and, of course, with him being Italian, there's a lot of stuff on here that's that's Italian that nobody's ever heard of. Um, but, well, yeah, that was... Well, the Italians have, sure. <laughs> when did, okay, where was it when women lost their tails? Okay, there's an interesting one. <laughs> well, there's one of my absolute favorite, and, and this is jumping forward a bit. This is the mid-80s. I want to say 86. Um, uh, yeah, 86, The Mission, which is one of my all-time favorite religious films. And... and uh, it was, I mean, the score is just amazing. Um, I saw the film. It's one of the few films that I saw, saw the picture in the theater, and I immediately went out and bought the soundtrack. Um, so this was 86. It would have been on cassette. I, am, I, I suspect it's in a box somewhere, and I've got the CD of it. Um, and it is an incredibly beautiful and haunting score. And uh, if you haven't seen the film, by the way, um, I highly recommend it. Not a genre picture. It's uh, a based sort of on a true story. Mm. Um, and uh, um, the, the cast on that was actually really incredible. Uh, Robert De Niro, Jeremy Irons, um, and uh, uh, story of redemption and finding faith and, and things like that. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of... Uh, uh, really kind of um, big, big, powerful, and yet very personal themes. But the music is just so incredible. And it just grabs you. Um, and uh, it's, it's one of those, one of those scores. And, and turn, the mission is one of those films that did not get a giant audience. Right. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, it barely made its box, its, its budget back. Um, but uh 
<clears throat> I highly recommend the film if you if you're interested in in a story uh, that is based somewhat on reality and and has uh, some emotional impact and uh, um, and is a strong story about faith then then I recommend it and it's gorgeous I mean the film is gorgeous um, but just listen to the video go to YouTube look up the music <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and kick back it's it's pretty stunning and and. You know, you we we could probably spend a couple of hours talking about all of the different things that he scored. You know, as far as the westerns and the and the spy stuff, and and um, I think most memorable for me is his score for the Untouchables. Oh yeah, and it's it's one of those that just really kind of I don't know what it is, but it just sticks in your head and it's that that haunting melody line i think and i want to say it's a it's maybe an english horn or or something that's kind of high up in the in the register uh that has that underneath you know with with the the violas and the bass underneath doing the doing the rhythm pieces it's it's a it's a very effective score with what kind of movie the untouchables is with it being the crime, the crime thriller and right. stuff, um, but yeah, he did Exorcist two. He so Exorcist two being a horror film that many many people try to pretend did not exist <laughs> because it really is. I mean, it's it's a uh, for as for as as powerful and impactful as the Exorcist was, um, and and it's interesting watching the Exorcist now because it doesn't necessarily have the same punch as it did for audiences then. Um, I mean, it's it's certainly an effective and powerful film, but modern horror, modern horror audiences will occasionally run into the fact that it's pacing, it's tone, it's not a quote-unquote modern horror film. Um, doesn't make it any, le- any less powerful, it's just something to, to be aware of if you haven't seen it, or haven't seen it in a while. Um, but Exorcist 2 is kind of like, yeah, um, you know, Exorcist 3 is really good, you should watch that. <laughs> And it is, by the way, if you haven't seen Exorcist 3, because Exorcist 2 traumatized you for being terrible. But the score on that film is really, really good. And it it makes the attempt to elevate bad material. And the music is definitely uh, something that you can listen to on its own and have it be powerful. It's the same thing with Mission to Mars. Um, Mission to Mars was, again, Brian De Palma. And... Um, at best, I would say it had a great cast, uh, and it's just a little too—it's a little too much. I want to make two thousand and one again, and not enough. I just—unfortunately, it just wasn't—it wasn't a great movie. But the score is beautiful, and and the the big dramatic moments of the film actually work at all. I think in many cases because of the power of the music. Um, Speaking of 2001, did you know that Stanley Kubrick wanted Morricone to score uh, Clockwork Orange? I would not be surprised about that at all. Kubrick wanted him, and Sergio Leone said, no, you can't have him. He's busy on another picture. And he wasn't. And... uh, Marconi says that he'd regretted it for forever. Um, according here to the to the trivia on IMDb, he wrote scores for What Dreams May Come, 
which mm-hmm. is the the Robin the Robin Williams film. Right. It was rejected, as was his score for the Scarlet Letter. Um, who who says? I'm sorry, Maestro. We're not going to use your music. I mean, uh, well, not only them, but John Carpenter did not use a significant chunk of what he wrote. Eric uh, uh, Morricone wrote for the thing. Mm-hmm. He used pieces of it. But if you get the soundtrack of the thing, there's like 20 or 30 minutes of music you didn't hear in the movie. Is there a, a commemorative edition on that? I want. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look at La La Land Records because um, I just got the 40th anniversary commemorative score for Superman the movie, mm. and it's three discs, and it's one of those where like, there's a lot in here that wasn't actually in the finished theatrical release. Um, there's an alternate opening title sequence that some of it is in the television edit, but what's used in the movie is not what John Williams originally wrote for the title sequence. It's a different, it's a different edit. It's a different mix, uh, a different arrangement. I mean, it's the same theme, of course, but it's not the same it's not the same sequence of elements and, mm. and stuff. And I'm like, oh. oh, so let's see here. I want to, I'm going to do a search here. And so while you're doing that, I'm going to, uh, for the folks who don't know, when, when Morcone was asked to do the thing soundtrack, he went and basically recorded a bunch of electronic pieces to sort of give sort of a, the same kind of vibe that he already knew that Carpenter liked. And uh, of the selections that he picked, Carpenter picked one, which became part of the, the iconic score. Um, and uh, Morricone said, I asked, Car-, and this is a quote, I asked Carpenter as he was preparing some electronic music with an assistant to edit on the film, why did you call me if you wanted to do it on your own? <laughs> and he surprised me. He said, I got married to your music. That's why I called you. And that's just one of the things. I mean, you end up, you end up once that his scores get into your head, you don't want to let them go. There's something really, really powerful about a lot of his music. Yeah. Uh, and it has sort of a uh, uh, earworm is often used as a negative when it comes to music, as it gets inside you. But there's all there's there's a reason we talk about that sort of thing where it just sort of gets inside your mind and, and stays there. Um, and of course, the emotional power. Of, of a lot of these pieces. Um, you know, the good and bad and the ugly. If you've ever seen a Western, you've probably heard that music because you've probably seen, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Or at um, least, you know, the the pieces of it. There are, you know, the, there are always clips that circulate around that you see, you know, bits and pieces on online or in clip shows or, you know, best of collections and that kind of thing. Um, I have to, I have to sit and think, I don't know that I've actually sat and watched it all the way through in one sitting. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I've seen parts of it, but I don't think I've seen the whole thing. I I, I will have to remedy that. Oh yeah. Well, and, and for the, 
course, we don't talk about Westerns much on this show, uh, <laughs> because generally speaking, uh, but at the same time, uh, if we consider, if we consider Westerns, all of them to be time travel shows, everything, it, everything it is, a, loophole, is a, right? well, it's all episodes of, uh, Briscoe County Jr. <laughs> taking place off camera. That's right. In the same universe, right? That's right. Um, I was I was a little surprised because I had it in my, I had it in my head that pale the score to Pale Rider was Morricone's, and uh, of course Pale Rider is a genre movie. It's a western, but it's also uh, heavily implied yeah. in the in the script. Spoiler alert for a nineteen nineteen eighty five. 1985 was, was Pale Rider uh, that late in, in yeah it was it was later in, um, but it's basically the 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 implication is very strong in the story that the, the character played by Clint Eastwood is in fact the angel of death uh, and uh, so that makes it a horror movie <laughs> and uh, but it's not by Morricone it's by uh, Lenny Meehouse and but it's also a really really fantastic score uh, uh, and very much again the you don't necessarily think about you know uh, Clint Eastwood making a horror film, but it's very much a Western. It just happens to have horror overtones. Uh, and they're subtler. It's not like an outright, welcome to the horror movie with, with horses. No, it's, it's, it's much more a, um, uh, it implies more than an outright state. But Exorcist 3, um, well, again, not Morricone, um, had George C. Scott. So, and it was not George C. Scott's first horror film. You don't think about George C. Scott as being a horror actor, right? Yeah. Because he was Patton. Well, yeah, among other things, yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, some of these things, um, they get known for other, other parts. Um, then again, you know, you don't think of William Shatner, but you do think of William Shatner when it comes to Manos Hands of Fate. <laughs> Shatner? In Manos, he he's not in, in that. No, I don't think he was. Oh in no, that. he wasn't in Manos. He was in the, what's the Esperanto one? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Are you, you're while you're look that up, I'm going to address the chat. Von Dufus says, "High Plains Drifter and Pale Rider both have a supernatural element to them." Mm -hmm. High Plains <clears throat> Drifter, yes, yes. And welcome, Von Dufus. Thanks for joining us tonight. I think one of the things that, and I don't, I don't know that if you if you attribute it to the Italian culture, but Morricone's scores to me feel like they have. I I would almost imagine that if you look at his scores the actual paper where the notes are written. I wonder how much emotional notes are there. This is what everybody should feel when they hear this mm. bar. You know, this is what everybody should feel when they hear this stanza or this, this, this section here. This is what we're trying to evoke because there are, there are those pieces of music and it's not just Morricone there's there's different composers that come up with like well like like we mentioned the Superman theme 
or or uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or Jaws. Um, or if you look at some of uh, Max Steiner's stuff with the Blue Max uh, mm-hmm. is, is a good example of that. They evoke a particular emotion that ties you in to expect something, expect a certain mm-hmm. something, because you hear this music and it sets you up for whatever's coming next, right? Sure. And not everybody can do that. There are some... There are some composers that are better at it than others and of course Morricone was was one of those I I would put him up if I had to pick you know like the top five type you know top five composers so I'd say Max Steiner um, Franz Waxman um, Ennio Morricone Elmer Bernstein Leonard Bernstein and um, Aaron Copeland didn't do it very much in terms of scores for films, but if you're talking right. talk about film composers, those guys are the ones that you look at and say they defined everything because John Williams went back to that. Right. You know, he wasn't he wasn't in that group as as a peer, but he you know when when Lucas put his stuff together, he's pulling from all of this. All of this stuff from Max Steiner and Fred Steiner and you know, all, all this all this group of, of composers who had done the big orchestral, the big the big showy music pieces to give John Williams an idea of what they were going to do. And I, you know, Marconi was in that group as as far as you know his ability to evoke a mood without any dialogue at all. You could just you could just you knew what was going on. It t- the The music told the story just as much as anything else in the in the movie did. Oh yeah, well, and and again, he would if you had one of his scores on a film that didn't deserve it. <laughs> um, I'm thinking of Orca, for example. <laughs> so, folks, if you've never seen Orca, think of the film that wanted to be another Jaws. Yeah, Jaws with a whale. And it cast accordingly. It had Richard Harris, Charlotte Rampling, uh, Robert Carradine, um, Bo Derek, for a given value of whether or not you liked Bo, Bo Derek. Uh, and it was not a good film. Not a good film. It, it just wasn't. But the score, again, is a really powerful score for a film about, you know, a for, you know the force of nature that is a, uh, you know, a Jaws-like creature in the form of a killer whale. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is a film, this is a film that, that got very, very little love. Uh, 10%, I believe is the, uh, the, the highest rating it ever got, um, in like the, in the wonderful world of Rotten Tomatoes or, or, yeah, I just, but the music again, you know, giving weight to that. And of course, you know, the, the, the quality of the film wasn't really what, you know, more funny was was responsible for he was responsible for giving the power to the to the sound of the film yeah. the, the emotion there and and even even if the film didn't deserve it um you know you there were only so many untouchables or the thing or you know um the ones that uh, really really hit a lot of genre audiences um <coughs> Phantom of the Opera, the 1998 version um, uh, by Dario Argento, which is 
Um, well, it's one of the goriest versions of Phantom of the Opera. Not a big surprise there, given given the director. Uh, Julian Sands starred in that. Uh, and I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, as, a, as a horror fan, I don't think it was the best adaptation of Phantom of the Opera there is. Uh, but the music, again, as you would expect from a film about Phantom of the Opera, mm-hmm. had to have a lot of emotional weight. And um, it's, uh, it's, again, one of the best parts of the film. Not one of Dario Argento's best horror films, but certainly a powerful score for, our, uh, for the subject matter, which I think actually works really, really well to the benefit of the film, if not a whole lot else does for the benefit of the film. The script is not great. Yeah. This is not another movie that probably doesn't deserve his score is Red Sonia. Well, it depends. I mean, come on, Bridget Nielsen <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sandal Bergman. No, it's uh, it's one of those that probably there were the best of intentions, but you know. You know the sword and sorcery, the loincloth movies. They need to. They need to have a a, a comeback. We need a they good need... sword and sorcery movie. We haven't had one in a while. Well, we didn't have a lot of them then either. We had a lot of them, but there's a certain amount of um, I don't know. There's getting getting a really good Conan movie. You know, we, we got one really great one from Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I think it happened because at a certain time and place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like the perfect, you know, he was becoming popular yeah. uh, the, the the bodybuilding industry, but also it was a film that had a really surprisingly great tone to it, all things considered. Um, the sequel... Mm, I'd, I'd say it was definitely a decent sequel, um, but Red Sonja was an attempt to spin that off, and uh, unfortunately, it probably fell into that. Well, it fell into that period where basically studios were going female leads in genre pictures. <laughs> don't be, don't be a fool, man! Did you not see Supergirl? Um, you know, uh, was but that, it was, was that before or after? Yeah, uh, eighty six, eighty five. Uh, see, Red, Red Sonja was eighty five. Eighty five. Yeah. Okay. So that was yeah. It was about that same same time then. Uh, yeah, it did uh, seven million in box office against an eighteen million dollar budget. So <laughs> yeah, but it's almost not necessarily a cult classic at this point. But it has that the appreciation of hindsight, mm-hmm. um, whether it's unintentionally funny, depending on how you want to watch it. It is kind of a time capsule in a way of that time period of oh, all of no the kidding. sword and sorcery of these, this is what they did back then. And I'm thinking the, I didn't see the Jason Momoa remake of Conan. You know, I didn't either, but it struck me that it was missing something. There was something in the tone of the trailers and the clips that we saw that it looked to me like, okay, there's, they, they're missing there's there's something about Conan that's missing out of this movie, and I couldn't ever really 
put my finger on what it was, but it was a tone in the way Conan, Jason Momoa's Conan came off on screen. And I don't know what it was, but it looked. There was just something about it that said this doesn't really look like a Conan the Barbarian movie. Well, I, I don't know. you know, I'm I'm not sure if we've had a good sword and sorcery picture since the mid '80s. Um, I'm trying to think of. Men, well, uh, John Carter might actually be the closest thing because yeah. it's, uh, but the the. You look at some of the things that you know. We got a we got the uh, Clash of the Titans remakes, right? Mm, yeah, big budget, high special effects, great cast, da, 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 all the thing, um, and and certainly the original Clash of the Titans has. It's a product of its time. Sure. Visually, it's very much a product of its time. Yeah, but and, visually, it's very rich. It's very dense. It's got a lot oh, of stuff yeah. going on that it, it, you know. But some it, of the effects have not aged well. Well, no. I mean, and, and that's and that's to some degree that's why you enjoy some of those films. Yeah. You know, Jason and the Argonauts. Okay. Can't be Ray Harryhausen. It's clearly stop motion animation it's you know it's it's very it's it's not you know it's yeah. not lifelike but at the same time it has a power and strength to it that the the glossy cgi clash of the titan films just never had this had the the, the power to them and even though they cover the same broad strokes and the storylines and things like that it's i don't know if there's i'm having a hard time thinking of any really good sword and sorcery films since the mid 80s i just don't yeah. nothing is coming to mind that doesn't mean there hasn't been one if if somebody can think of one that would be great but i'm just having a hard hard time uh von dufus says scorpion king <clears throat> would the would the mummy films maybe fall in? i mean they're not really sword and sorcery they're they're mm. kind of horror schlock depending on they, how you look at they're it they're more adventure pictures <clears throat> I yeah. mean, really, they they have they have. I mean, they're they're genre pictures, no question. I mean, they're they've got yeah. mummies and the resurrected dead, and they've got you know sorcery and magic. But no, the sword and sorcery pictures were very much, and even if even if they weren't set in a quote unquote real time, um, that whole different genre of the sixties, seventies, and eighties really is when the kind of the I think the middle eighties was the end of it, really, where you had the 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 hero who didn't say much um, in many ways, like, like a lot of Westerns, um, yeah. you know, he, he came into the town or the, the country or the village or whatever and uh, encountered a threat, defended, you know, a small group of people or an individual. La and, Lady know. Hawk. See, I wouldn't say Lady Hawk was sword and sorcery because it's the weight of that movie is. I mean, it's a romance. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a romance, but it's but, also a uh, it's it's a comedic romantic fantasy. All uh, right, I can it, see that. Um, no, I mean you almost you you have to have the loincloth hero for a good sword and sorcery picture. Beastmaster, um, which is a cult classic. Yeah, uh, the original, of course, is the best of them. Mark Singer um, uh, is a, an example of a low, relatively low budget sword and sorcery picture. 
that actually holds up pretty well. But it's the standard, you know, again, it's the, it's the loincloth hero, the scantily clad female, mm-hmm. the villain with, uh, you know, world domination plans, uh, also scantily clad, usually, usually uh, you know, a, a villain with a very large chest, and, I'm, and these are the men, um, mm-hmm. you know, wearing a, a half and a, mask. And a fur cape. <laughs> and a cape, a yeah. cloak, yeah. And they usually have a villainous female uh, ally. Um, who Played is, by somebody uh, who looks like Ornella Moody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, there's a, there's a certain formula to to the classic sword and sorcery. You know, if you can get Richard Lynch to come in and play your villain, you know, you you're you're, you're doing pretty well. Brian Blessed, get Brian. <laughs> See, I'm not okay. Uh, so okay. So here's here's what we need to do for our next <laughs> Indiegogo. We should we should develop a new sword and sorcery movie. And we get Brian Blessed in the cast somewhere and convince Sean Connery to come out of retirement for a day. Beg him. We're going to storm the castle. (laughs) Well, I mean, even if it's just, let's, hey, voice a dragon. Uh, uh, Dragon Slayer. There was, there's one. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think I think it it definitely has sword and sorcery, the 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 higher end of the sword and sorcery yeah. uh, genre. I mean, there's a there's a lot of lowbrow, and there's nothing wrong with lowbrow fantasy, by the way. There's a lot of fun to be had in quote unquote lowbrow pictures, uh, but it's very much the you know dragon slayer is is well legend uh, is also the higher end of the sword and sorcery uh, yeah uh, genre there. So I guess legend legend might be the last, but again, legend was not a uh, success in the theaters at the time. But it, it it also has you know gotten a lot of reassessment over time. Uh, because I mean, come on, Tim Curry is the devil. Come on, <laughs> how can you go wrong? I'm I'm looking at a lot of uh, the list here on Morricone's. Uh, IMDb listing and according to there was a there was an article a write-up that was done in variety he did now for those for those who don't know this is a little bit of inside baseball um, uh, composers don't always write all of the music in the films they have their stuff and then they have people called orchestrators who then will take the core of the compositions and kind of flesh them out with everything else with all, you know, rhythm and counter melody and harmonies and stuff. And Morricone did all of it himself. He did all of his orchestrations. He didn't, he didn't do half of it and then hand it over to somebody. He did all of his orchestrations, but I'm looking at his IMDb list and there's a lot of, especially with the Italian pictures, there's a lot of romance. Mm-hmm. There are spy stuff. And then you look at his American pictures, which are completely in a, in a different category. You know, the, not, even, not even Westerns. Um, in the Line of Fire, which is, yeah, it's a Clint Eastwood, but it's Clint Eastwood in the Secret Service. It's, it's, a, right. it's a crime thriller. It's not... It's not a Western. It's not a romance. Um, and of course, you've got the thing. You've got um, you know the various different you know biblical movies. Bullworth. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
that's as probably as far from the Italian romance pictures as you could get as Bullworth. Well, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, people who actually managed to, you know, um, Quentin Tarantino got him for The Hateful Eight. Yeah. Which but, is a... a but that's a know, Western, though. Well, yeah, but it's also a Quentin Tarantino movie. So it's it's a Western as filtered through a crime a crime picture, a, yeah. ni- a 1980s drive-in crime picture. Um, but you know, for TV, he did he did part of the score for the season nine of The Virginian. Well, that goes back a ways. That goes to nineteen. But again, a western. Yeah, Oops. but you don't think you don't think about these composers who who have these giant. You know, you don't think about them doing TV. Yeah. You know the like I said the the Space nineteen ninety nine Italian version. It was just like really. <laughs> this <laughs> what is was thing? that called? I'm not seeing that anywhere. What was did it, uh, it a, was uh, called uh, Space 1999. Um, I'm not it, sure it what just, it was called. It was just the translation then. Yeah, oh, okay, um, okay. I'm not sure because I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing Space 1999 on his on his list. Yeah, uh, according to and of course we're looking at two different lists, which of course is going to have a little bit of crossover here. The uh, his his list on on Wikipedia has him as as doing that. Um, what was the year on that? Well, Space 1999 came out in, what, 73? Yeah, but in the Italian version, I think it was 75, seven, 75 to 77. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm going to see, I'm going to have to see if I can hunt that down because I'm really curious just to see what the, that's, that's the score you take when you do the, you finally get the long promised or threatened reboot off the ground. Um, <laughs> Assuming that's ever going to happen. Yeah. I don't know that it ever will. Probably no, even no. shouldn't. Yeah. I just, I mean, it's the con, the concept can be done. You just have to figure out a way to make it work. But yeah. No, I mean, there's, you know, he, he definitely had, you know, he did Adrian Lin's Lolita, uh, you know, the adaptation of, of Nabokov. Um, disclosure with Michael Douglas and Demi Moore. Mm-hmm. I didn't even. I had completely forgotten he had done that film, yeah. and that's you know, uh, not a um, a bash on the on, on his score. I just haven't thought about that film in a long time. Um, State of Grace. Ed Harris and Gary Oldman, Robin Wright, John Turturro. Um, was a neo noir, which I again another film I haven't thought about in a long time. I need to actually go back and look at that. Um, but he's done Shakespeare, he did Hamlet for uh, Franco Zeffirelli. I mean, it's just he really did tie me up, tie me down. Uh, uh, Pedro you know, Amandovar, I always mangle his name, uh, and that's a you know kind of a romantic sex comedy you don't think about again things you don't think lakaja foe i mean right. he's done he's done i mean really just the he had his music impact just about every genre of filmmaking you can imagine um uh, crime thrillers legal thrillers horror films science fiction and he adapted that stuff very much to you know, having these very iconic scores for these very, a lot of these films have, have been around and, and, and still managed to be 
impactful over time. Not all of them, of course. Yeah. It looks like uh, it looks like some of the Spazio 1999 are on YouTube. Hmm. The Italian Space 1999. Ah, looks like it's on YouTube. Um, probably not legally. Probably not so much. Probably not. So, but yeah, uh, yeah it's uh, yeah. I'm definitely gonna have to <laughs> see what that score sounds like. No. It, it, it's it's fascinating when you look at some you look at some of these performers, these some of these composers, and you just realize how much you got used to them uh, being the sound of movies, mm-hmm. and how much they have they have just become almost. Uh, expected when you when you hear their music you're like oh yeah okay great well it's like elmer bernstein uh elmer bernstein western you always yeah yeah, you know magnificent seven and you have um who was who's the one that did so many of the one uh of the scores for hitchcock um oh yeah um Uh huh. Uh huh. Oh, uh-huh. I cannot remember. It, but it's it's one of those where uh, Hans Zimmer. Mm. You know, you have you have certain particular uh, composers that you always you always hear their name. They're, you know, they're constantly doing scores for for films. John Williams, of course, being the one that was the most prolific in our teenage years you know formative years um but you have john uh uh, james horner jerry goldsmith um uh james golds is it james goldsmith jerry's is it jerry's son um i think so and then you have uh then you have the tv composers You, you know you've got bill conti who did tv and film um there was another one that I was thinking of, oh, for TV, you know, in the 80s, it was Mike Post. Oh, yeah. I no mean, kidding. Mike posted everything, and it was all over the place. And it was just like, oh, this is, and it got to a point where you could re- you could recognize if it was a Mike Post theme, right? It's like, because I remember when Hunter came on. Mm-hmm. You remember that one with Fred Dreyer as, uh, as, as the, yeah, the detective? And right, Hunter yeah. came on, and the first time, I, saw, I remember seeing the premiere and I was listening to it, I was like, that sounds like a Mike Post theme. And sure enough, music by Mike Post and B. Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Like, yep, okay. I've gotten to the point now where I could recognize Mike Post. Well, it's the same theme. thing. You, you mentioned Hans Zimmer. It's the same thing, really, with him. I mean, he's got a distinct sound that even though his stuff has been adapted for different kinds, he's done his music for different kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> there's a distinct no sound to it there's a distinct tone to it i mean he's doing the new dune soundtrack um you know he was uh you know um however you feel about the dc you know movies you know he was he's responsible for the musical sound of those films yeah hans zimmer Um, didn't do psycho it was bernard herman i don't uh, know (laughs) i was like that doesn't sound right but (laughs) I didn't want anybody to think that I thought Hans Zimmer did Psycho because I know that wasn't the case. No, no, he did do Dark Phoenix though, so yeah, he can't get it right all the time. Well, no, the score yeah. to Dark Phoenix is fine. Yeah. It's another case of you know 
listen to the score on its own and uh, don't worry about the movie so much. Yeah, I would I would be interested in in some of these films where you have the iconic piece, the signature theme. I'd be curious because we all know we you know we know the story about Star Trek the motion picture when Jerry Goldsmith comes up with the music and he sits down with Robert Robert Wise and Robert Wise says there's no theme. And Goldsmith says yeah he was talking in an interview and he said he just smacked himself on the head he was like well, duh. He says I don't know how I missed that. I mean he's it's got all this great music but there's no distinctive melody theme this main theme right right the one that we all recognize was kind of not there to start with and he had to go back and do it over again but it kind of makes me wonder if your your greats like Marconi or or waxman or bernard herman or any of those if they had those moments where you know, you had those those bits where oh, this music just doesn't work at all. We got to do it all oh, over I'm sure. again. I think I think they have to be. I mean, the look they these are folks who really have done the the sheer volume of work that they've done, the sheer strength of the ultimate quality of the work. Um, you know, there have been times they sat there and went, "This just isn't working at all." Yeah. And I have to scrap all this because it's not even going to. I'm not. No one gets to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember. I do remember a couple of times when I was when I was working on stuff that I'd I'd written, where I would you know kind of kind of plink it out on the piano, and it would just sound awful. Uh, no, that's not going to work at all. No, it's just absolutely not. And 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 the music, the the sheet music goes in the trash can. It was like this is never going to see the light of day. I'm not even going to finish it. It's just so terrible. Uh, and and of course, not having all the formal training for you know years and years and years and years, I wasn't a prolific composer. You know, I had some ideas for some different things. I I. I'm sure somewhere in the piles of paper and files that I still have, there are uh, there are little musical notes and bits and baubles and stuff because I do that. Sure. I, I would do that all the time in college, uh, where I would something would pop into my head, and it was just it was just a little segment, it's just a little piece, and I'd have to okay, what note is that? And and I'd write it down. And, you know, I'll, I'll come back to it later. I'll, I'll think of it later. I've got gobs of that. Yeah. And, you know, here I am. I'm 50. I'm never going to do anything with it. Oh, well, but... you know, I, I just, as a, I, I was a violinist for um, 10, 15 years. That explains a lot. <laughs> well, I just, I was always, I was always technically, technically quite good. Yeah. But I was never, there's, there's any great musician really has to have a certain kind of passion to their performance that I just simply didn't have. I, I could, I could make the notes happen, but I didn't have this, that, that whatever it is that makes yeah. a great musician, a great musician. Um, and I was aware of it fairly early on and sort of stuck with it because it was sort of an expected thing. Um, my sister, who's much more of a casual musician, 
uh, is a much better violinist. In fact, I gave her my violin because she'd get more out of it than I was getting into it. Yeah. Um, so while I've never composed music, um, I've, you know, aside from just listening to it for pleasure, I've listened to it and, and played it for, you know, the I've did competitions and orchestra and things like that and all that stuff. Um, but it's one of those things where I don't have that skill set, but I can appreciate it because I know how hard it is to both perform it and also to write it. Mm. Um, and so the when you can have the kind of success that some of these composers have had, um, and and you know someone like Morricone has uh, in over the course of his career, um, it's it's work. It's heavy work. Although I have to say, I looking through some of his stuff here, I some more of his pop music things. He's worked with Katie Lang. He recorded with, um, and I love this song. It couldn't happen here by the Pet Shop Boys. He was the co-writer on that. <laughs> and uh, you know, if you're you know if you're a teenager in the '80s, the Pet Shop Boys were really big, and they kind of exploded into the into the music world about about mid '80s. And yeah. and uh, I want to say that was the latter half of. That was like their second or third album that got, that really hit in the states, uh, and again, you know, the guy who did all this music collaborated with the Pet Shop Boys. You know, <laughs> Just, he loved making music. I'm looking through all of this stuff. That's like and, when you find out that Christopher Lee was a was a, a, a metal, uh, oh yeah, heavy metal musician, death and metal. Then you, and then you watch him perform yeah. it, and you're like. <laughs> I completely understand this. This Absolutely. makes perfect sense to me. Absolutely. I, how could I not have known this? How could I not have looked at him and gone, oh, yeah. Well, of course. He's a headbagger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I mean, the first time I saw that, uh, literally, and folks, if you have not seen Christopher Lee do this, you must. You must do this thing. And and the, his genius. his last one... Uh, was how old was he when he when his last one came out? He was like ninety something. Yeah, it was after all the Lord of uh, all the Lord of the Rings stuff, and he had collaborated with some. And that was the first I'd heard about it. And I thought, and I I distinctly remember Christopher Lee did metal, and then the second thought in my head was, well, of course he did because it just made so much sense that you would have Christopher Lee doing death metal. I mean, I, you, you, why not? Well, I mean, you, again, somebody somebody who you don't think of, you think of Christopher Lee as, you know, from the Lord of the Rings uh, films, if you're of a certain age, or the yeah. Star Wars films, if you're of a certain age. Then you go back in time and you really see him as Dracula, a, a mostly silent Dracula. He just let his screen presence do the performing. I mean, his Dracula had very few little dialogue. Um <laughs> And then, of course, you go back and yeah, and yeah. except you made it work, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and he was in, he was a lot. He was a huge sex symbol. I was I was doing the Looney Tunes version. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Um, but he also, you know, this is also a man who, you know, was a soldier and, uh, you know, the he was a he was a, a spy. Um, in fact, there was there was a classic story from Lord of the Rings where he's talking about. Uh, you know, they're talking about what is it? Was it when Worm Tongue is killed? And he says, "That's not that's not the sound people make when they die." And everyone sat there and went, <laughs> uh, "Stab, stabbed to the stabbed to the back." I think is what right. the mm -hmm. the 
thing because apparently when the lungs collapse, uh, it it makes a certain sound. And apparently, according to uh, according to Peter Jackson, Christopher Lee actually demonstrated right. what it sounds like on uh, on set and freaked everyone out. <laughs> Well, because you know he's he, he always came across as a matter of fact person. Yeah, it's not like you know here's you know just no no that's not the sound it makes. It sounds like this. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, the the we we get these images in our head of these performers and what they do, and then we with that and it ends up getting this sort of narrow vision uh of less you know the, and, and some of that's because people do iconic roles i mean we everyone's going to think of sean connery as james bond yeah um you know and and you you get big write-ups when you have someone like you know uh christopher lee doing heavy metal but you know and then without realizing that this has been the guy his <laughs> first good chunk of his life he was heavy metal let's just you know if you, if you weren't aware that christopher lee was heavy metal now you now you know. Yeah. Now we don't get that's one thing that you can definitely say. Even though he did a lot of collaboration with with uh, a lot of different people, um, you don't think of you don't think of uh, Morricone as doing you know heavy metal kind of things. But you also don't think of him. He had a you know again huge influence in in Italian horror. He did a lot of Italian horror, uh, a lot of right. westerns. A lot of dramas, some science fiction. Definitely somebody who, uh, you know, his music. His music had weight. It carried, uh, and it carried a sound that we're all used to. Um, the fun part is, and this, of course, is the sad thing about when you lose someone like Morricone, um, is that you've lost them. There's going to be no new music, but it also gives you a chance to explore some of the stuff that you didn't know he made. Right. Um, and and check out some of the stuff. I mean, there's. You know, space nineteen nine ninety ninety nine, the Italian version. I had no idea. <laughs> I needed to hear. I, I need well, to hear that. And I'm I'm looking through, and I see Wolf with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer, and I'm thinking, what 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 was that? And and it's it's a horror film, and, and mm-hmm. of course that's probably why it's never registered. I I I remember you know once I looked at it, I remember seeing a seeing something about it, but not being a horror aficionado i'm one of those okay that was a that was a film it's it's worth it for watching jack nicholson swagger through being a werewolf (laughs) it's kind of (laughs) um but but it was also in kind of that same window of time where he made what i consider to be a one of the worst films ever made and certainly one of jack nicholson's uh worst films um which is man trouble starring ellen barkin I've walked out of two movies in my life. Mm. I've sat through some garbage, but I've walked out on two films, and that was one of them. <laughs> I do not know how Man Trouble ended, but I do know that it was a, it was a the abuse it heaped on both uh, Jack Nicholson and Ellen Barkin, who are two amazing performers, yeah. uh, was criminal. It was criminal, and they should be ashamed of themselves. I remember walking out. I think the only the only movie that I remember walking out on. Now there there have been films that I have stopped watching as far as like DVDs. Um, hard, we've talked about hardware being one of them. Um, 
at the time, it was called the unsinkable Shecky Moskowitz. And I think I've told this story before. Um, it is, we, we had, it was, it was in my first couple of years in college. It was, you know, Batman had just come out. It was 89. And we went to the theater. Oh, let's go see, you know, we were all going to see Batman. Well, Batman was sold out. So we're out. We don't want to go back to campus. So what else is there? Oh, well, there's this thing. This unsinkable Shecky Moskowitz, and it's got, you know, it's got uh, Adam Sandler in it. And, you know, he was an up-and-comer from Saturday Night Live, and people recognized the name. Like, okay, we'll give it a shot. Before we all knew better. Before we all knew better. And I remember going in there, and, and the first, the story is that Adam Sandler is low man on the totem pole on a cruise ship. A, a busboy janitor type level of job, and he wants to be the ship's comedian. He wants to do, he wants mm -hmm. to do stand up comedy, but that role is already taken, and it's, it's character played by Norm Macdonald. And I think we lasted ten minutes because all of the humor was crude. All of the language was blue. I mean, f bombs going like that. It was like it was like just left and right. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, this is yeah, this is not this. Uh, no, I don't. I don't care about this movie at all. And it actually tainted um, any interest that I had in any Adam Sandler movie past that. I've never seen The Water Boy. I've never seen um, uh, what's the golf one? What's the one? Happy Gilmore. Billy Madison. Happy Gilmore. Yeah. I've never seen Billy Madison. I've never seen. I haven't seen anything up until the point where he was he was uh, working for the hotel. Uh, what was that one? Uh, oh, I lost. I lost interest in Adam Sandler a long time ago. I, I yeah. I'm like I don't. I this. I I don't have any interest in this guy, or give, Norm Macdonald you know, at all. I give credit either. for the fact that he's made a very successful career out of playing the same character again and again and again. Yeah. But he has done some, he's done some, he stepped outside of that, those roles to make some interesting movies um, that he doesn't get, that don't get the yeah. same kind of buzz. I mean, some of his dramas have actually turned out to be uh, rather interesting. Um, well, and I but, think that's the other thing too, is, you know, as, as we see with actors, composers sometimes get typecast as well, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, like I said, I, when, I, when you get to the point where you can recognize a Mike Post theme song you can re you can recognize john williams generally oh yeah no question um james horner i can always pick out a james horner score just like that because i know what he, his his signature elements are in every score that he does and uh, and it's gotten to a point where where my son can actually pick out you know james horner or john williams or you know that that sort of thing and morricone didn't really have that that one thing that you could recognize every single time. Oh, well, this is right. Ennio Morricone. I think some, a lot of the older composers probably didn't have that as much. Um, it wasn't the, the signature move or their, their signature line that kind of made them have, I mean, Hans Zimmer stuff to me, I can always recognize Hans Zimmer stuff. Mm -hmm. That's not a negative. I mean, it's, it, it's certainly, there's a distinct sound to his music that, that, 
works very, very well. And yeah. when it's applied well to the right story, it's really effective. Alan Silvestri uh, is another one. Yeah. Um, and John Williams is the same. There's these, and, and there's a reason why you want to hear their music again and again, those, those common themes, those common musical elements. Um, but yeah, some of the older composers, they were much more in the mood of let me, you know, whatever the film needs, that's what I will do. Yeah. Um, and if you listen to their work over a really big scale, you can hear some of those elements coming back again. Because every, everyone has their own finger, fingerprints that ends up in their art. Uh, but overall, I mean, if you, were to, if you were to play some of these big iconic scores that, that Morcone did side by side, you know, if you spread it out enough, you'd catch those themes. But they all had an originality to them, which, which ends up being, um, I think, one of the selling, the, the, the long, selling points of the longevity of his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that his career, he was doing this stuff not only, you know, from his native Italy, but all the way around the world. I mean, he was a, he was doing scores for for films in, you know, how many languages? He was doing scores for how many different studios? How many different, you know, uh, and refused genres. to move to Hollywood, even though they offered to to set him up in his own place. He liked Italy, you know, it was home. All right. Speaking of selling points, let me do this here real quick as we wrap up here because we've gone over an hour. This sticker, we have some of these here, a Sci-Fi For Me sticker. Now, this is something that we were going to do as part of our Indiegogo campaign. But since I have them and since we are thinking about some way that we could show our appreciation for our for our, our not customers, our audience, we're just going to I'm just going to give them away. So here's what we're going to do, because over the weekend I caught uh, somewhere, and I don't even know, a rabbit hole all the way down in, and somehow caught a cut-together piece of the first hour of MTV. And, and at one point they were talking about getting an, getting an MTV sticker so you could mark the dial on your TV. To, here's, where you, here's where you go for, for MTV. And... Those of us of an age are going to remember, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to, <laughs> right? So here's, so here's what we're going to do, folks. Send a self-addressed stamped envelope. If you want one of these oh stickers, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Sci-Fi For Me, 1503 Main Street, number 305, Grandview, Missouri, 64030. And I will send to you absolutely free, just the cost of a stamp, one of these stickers you can show your support by putting that sticker on your phone case or your laptop or your tablet or your tower or your your or your or your trapper keeper or <laughs> and uh, and we could go from there right oh my yes i still have mine well, trapper actually, I've got, I've got it. I think it, I think it was my sister's at one point, but yeah, I've still got a trapper keeper here and it still works. Um, you know what? I probably have one. It might actually be in the little, <laughs> it's from my college days. So uh-huh. It's a uh, little cabinet over there. Yep. There's, yep. Yep. Now, there's stuff in there. There's stuff in there that's probably uh, a vintage time capsule of the late 80s. Oh, no kidding. Now, since we don't have, we don't, since we don't have the Indiegogo, uh, if there are 
any of you who are interested in in supporting us in, in a in a financial manner, we do have our Subscribestar account set up over at uh, subscribestar.com slash sci-fi for me. $5 and $10 levels uh, to help us out that way to kind of upgrade our gear. Um, we just got this, uh, you can't really see it, but this studio arm for the microphone to kind of get it up out of the way from... Because over here, it's in front of screens. And so now it's now it's sort of up out of the way where it's not uh, blocking my view and stuff. So little improvements like that, plus travel if we go to events and, and whatnot, eventually, if we ever get back to events. Uh, so there is that. Time will come. Time will come. All right. Well, our time has come. Uh, time to wrap up for this one. We do thank everybody for watching. And uh, if you're listening on the replay, we uh, we appreciate you being here as well. Uh, and uh, those of you in the chat, thanks very much for your comments. And if you have a favorite Ennio Morricone score, uh, leave us a comment. Let us, uh, oh, yeah. let us hear from you and, and tell us what you like about his work, about his music. And we will do something next week. What do you want to talk about next week? You want to do sidekicks next week? We've been talking about that. Uh, we can talk about sidekicks next week. We okay. can something. Ho hopefully, uh, uh, we won't lose anybody great in no between kidding, now. Right? Or we lose anybody, but so right. many different ones. You right. know, The Devil Went Down to Georgia is kind of a, a genre song. You could make that oh, argument. Of course it is. It's, it's, yes. uh, it's very much a horror song. Yes. All right, so uh, so our condolences to the family of uh, Maestro Morricone and uh, to the family of Charlie Daniels. And yes, those of you who are, who are here and watching, uh, whether it's live or replay, we do thank you for being here. And we will come back here and do this again next week with another edition. Now, in the meantime, uh, tomorrow we are going to have a new episode of Triple Bites with the latest news about Star Trek and... Uh, the Orville, which right now we don't have any news about the Orville. <clears throat> and then uh, we just have a brand new show that we're sort of soft launching. It's called Live from the Bunker. And we're going to have a very our, our first interview conversation on Wednesday at noon. In the meantime, we'll we'll probably do some re replays from the archives and, and that sort of thing. So uh, you can check that out as well. And that's going to do it for us. So there we are. Thanks, folks. All right, Tim, get some rest. We will talk to you all later. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.